But it's great to see everyone. Uh, it's very good to see all the visitors who are here today. Um, it's one of the joys of living in Savannah. Is uh, It's an area where a lot of people like to visit, especially during the summer months. Uh, and it's just very good to hear the extra singing, uh, the voices involved in praise as well. Uh, not everything we do in these assemblies, I think, is going to be things we do in heaven, like the Lord's Supper. I don't get the impression we're taking the Lord's Supper in heaven. Uh, but we will certainly be singing praise to God forever and ever in heaven. Uh, so it's a great joy, uh, an increasing joy, to be able to sing God's praise with other Christians from other places and just be reminded how big the kingdom is when we're together. So uh, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10 here. And we're going through Titus because uh, I'm here as an evangelist. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, Paul tells Titus, an evangelist, speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. And I think what he outlines here would be the sound doctrine particularly he's emphasizing. And you look at verse 15, he says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Um, and you look at chapter 3, verse 8, if your Bible's already open there. It's a trustworthy statement and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Uh, so I kind of consider a lot of the things that Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, almost like sermon outlines for an evangelist. So these are things that are very important. I think they can be easy to neglect. Uh, and a lot of these things, I think, can come with some insecurity that can make it difficult to teach on. Uh, for instance, Titus, as seemingly a young single man, is supposed to teach, verse 2, older men, how they're supposed to be, and older women, and even younger women, <laughs> who they're supposed to be, uh, but these are things that need to be taught. Uh, and I want you to think as well here by introduction, what happens in environments where there ought to be some kind of accountability uh, or higher standard that we're supposed to be striving towards? And I don't just mean like um, religious environments, just even work environments, school environments, you know, whatever. What happens in environments like that where little is expected, where nobody really cares or where there's no higher ambitions that anyone is really seeking after, uh, where there isn't any real sense of accountability towards any higher standards. Uh, what happens in environments like that? People tend to not take what they're doing very seriously. If there's anything we are to take seriously, as John was teaching in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 this morning in our Bible class, there's nothing we should take more seriously than our relationship with God and with one another, right? Uh, our relationship with God comes with a very high calling. And what we think about that calling and how we approach it ultimately comes down to and really uh, demonstrates ultimately what we really believe about Jesus, right? Is he just someone that we intellectually believe like, yeah, he existed. Yes, he was a person. Yes, he died for me. Or do we see him as a model for us, an example do we really see him as our teacher and master? Is he really able to dictate for us every asset, every faculty of the way that we live? Um, so Titus was to work on not only teaching in verse 15 these things, but he was to exhort them, meaning that he was to give application to it. And I think even on a more, er more personal, more intimate level, uh, urge application, you know, not just from a distance from a pulpit, but I think in personal relationships, work on urging these things. And that's where uh, this can be more difficult. 
And he was to reprove these things, meaning there may need to be some correction involved in this. And that's certainly not fun, as you would think of fun. But they're needed things, right? God calls us to a high calling, and we're, we, we are called uh, to seek after these things and to hold ourselves accountable to them. I want you to remember as well, chapter 1, verse 12, uh, the environment that Titus was in. So he was in Crete. And if you look at verse 12, what kind of environment was Crete? You know, is it an environment where it sounds like this was a conducive environment for Christianity, where, you know, the rulers were making righteous laws and making sure that Christians were kind of uh, honored in the culture? No, no, no. (laughs) Paul says rightly in verse 13 that there's a quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. (laughs) You know, could you imagine as a Christian saying that about like a large group of people and that being an inspired word from someone like the Apostle Paul. You know, if someone said that about Savannah, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, hold on with the maligning, with the bitterness, right? Like there's good things in our culture, but no, Paul says that's that's how Crete is. What I'm, what I'm trying to get to is Paul the Apostle expected that Titus would be able to cultivate a kingdom culture like this in a place like Crete and even appoint elders in a city that seemingly would do everything to make that impossible. Sometimes, you know, it can be said, well, we can't appoint elders. Our culture just is so, it's just not conducive for it. We just can't do it. Nonsense, right? With God, all things are possible. So we just need to increase our faith and the way that we pursue these things. So again, remember where Titus was. This was an embraceably ungodly place. And yet with diligence, with devotion, uh, these things certainly were possible and expected. So servants were a part of the reality of the world that Titus was living in, just a part of the reality. And there are many instructions given to uh, servants, slaves, uh, throughout the New Testament. And we'll be um, certainly looking at the one in Titus here in just a moment. Um, And uh, just before this, it's been a while since we've looked at this, but this is is a series that I've been doing through the year once a month. I, I try to do this every year as kind of like, uh, something that I focus on in the Bible that we teach through um, once a month through the year. So we're obviously more than halfway. There's four lessons left after this. One more in chapter two and then three lessons in chapter three to finish it up. But back on uh, Titus here, and, and there's Spanish on the board uh, because Miguel, um, who visits with the group regularly, uh, I think he went to the bathroom. Um, he does not speak English, so I try to have some parallel um, Spanish on the board. But anyway, uh, so with instructions to servants, there are five separate instructions given to servants in the New Testament. And this might surprise you, uh, but I think it kind of highlights how important this is. Uh, That's more instructions than are even given to husbands and wives. So there's, I think, four places in the New Testament, separate places that deal with husbands, wives, and marriage relationship. There's five places in the New Testament where servants are given very similar instructions. So it's obviously something very, very important that is continuously, very heavily emphasized in the New Testament. And I want you to think, why would that be? Why would there be so many instructions given to servants, slaves, throughout the New Testament? And I want to suggest two things. Number one, I want to illustrate with a quote. I'm not endorsing the person that I'm quoting here. Um, but a few years ago, uh, well... <laughs> More than a few years ago, I used to work out really seriously. This was a long time ago, actually. Uh, and I would motivate myself by, like, finding inspirational quotes. And this one kind of stuck with me, not because I 
I wrestled, but there's a guy named Dale Gable. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. He was an Olympic wrestler, uh, and he's very famous in giving like motivational speeches. Anyway, he's, he's particularly famous for a quote where he says, once you've wrestled, everything else in life is easy. So I don't know if you know much about wrestling, but training is particularly intense for wrestling. There's a lot of disciplines that are involved. His point is, there are so many disciplines to master in wrestling that it inevitably will leak into other areas of your life after you have mastered those disciplines. Uh, and I think that's the idea with servants, right? If we can get a handle on what it means to be a servant, and I, and I mean like practically and realistically, you know, not just that we ambiguously kind of generally, yeah, we're servants of God, but I mean really, like really applying the discipline of thinking like a servant, then other things in our lives, whether that be our work, our family relationships, school relationships, I would argue even just relationships in general with people, whether that be our brethren or people in the world, if we can really truly get a handle on what it means to be a servant, as we're told in the, in the New Testament, other things become so much easier after that. The problem is when we don't think like a servant, right? Secondly, what form did Jesus take when he was on earth? And I don't just mean like a man, right? But how is Jesus's role both self-described by Jesus and also described about him when he's written about later? Jesus would say he did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians chapter 2 would say to, that we need to apply the same mentality that Christ had, who took the form of a bond servant, pouring himself out, becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? So the form that Jesus took, besides obviously being a man, is Jesus took the form of a bond servant while he was on earth, right? So I think this is important because when we think like a servant, we are thinking like Jesus. Jesus came as a slave, before we deal with parallel passages, which I'm about to get to, was that right? That Jesus lived as a degraded, humbled, mistreated servant. Was that right? Was that fair that he did that? Absolutely not, right? And we're going to come back to that, how important his example is in that. So parallel passages here, just really quick, just things that are emphasized. There, there's kind of an angle that's emphasized in all of the other passages that it's implied in Titus 2, but it's not as explicitly stated. So I, I want to go over these passages to show how um, one particular angle is, is emphasized. So Ephesians 6, this isn't the whole passage, uh, but just aspects of it. So in Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, as servants are told to be obedient to their masters, they're told to do this not just like externally, but with fear and trembling. Not only with fear and trembling, but in the sincerity of their heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service, not to men, but to Christ. I think in that passage, it emphasizes three times, to Christ, to Christ, to the Lord, not man. Um, so a servant was to see their service ultimately as not to their master, but to the Lord. And they were even to do this with fear and trembling. And in, in my work in the past, when I've, when I've worked for a direct employer, that was very difficult for me to figure out how do I, how do I make sure I'm you know, treating my, my boss with the kind of respect where, you know, I would be pursuing even a fear and a trembling in the respect I give them. That is very hard for me to work out. But suffice it to say, that's, that's the calling, uh, is even with fear and trembling. Colossians 3, a very similar instruction, in all things obey with sincerity of heart, 
fearing the Lord. And by the way, again, I'm going to be applying this mainly to like employer employee relationship, but even though I'll be kind of using that as my main parallel, um, there are, I think, many other areas of application. That's just for the sake of the lesson, the main parallel I'll be looking at and referencing. First Timothy 6, 1 through 2 uh, is to me uh, an extremely challenging instruction. Uh, and really there's, there's one thing that said, that servants are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And honor isn't just something you give by word or by action. It's an attitude, ultimately, that you have. Uh, and First Peter, to increase how challenging this is, uh, says that this is to be done not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are harsh and unreasonable. Uh, again, when you put these instructions together, there there is an, an attitude we're being called to, not just that we're to obey, get through it, do the right things and be done with it, but even to cultivate a very specific attitude uh, to view people who are undeserving of honor and then to give them the highest possible honor uh, in our heart and in our innermost attitude. I do want you to turn to First Peter 2, um, and we're going to look at here 21 through 25, uh, and coming back to this idea of this is the form Jesus took. Uh, I'm going to read 21 through 25. So Peter, I think, is very aware of how challenging an application this would be. And so he directly follows up this instruction to servants with this exhortation in 1 Peter 2, uh, 21. Uh, for you have been called for this purpose. Again, after he's talked about uh, uh, honoring masters who are harsh and unreasonable, You've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed." For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherds and guardian of your soul. All right, a couple of quick points about this here. This pushes us to be more rooted in Christ and to be more reflective on him. Um, I used a term last week. We talked about evangelism last week and, and aspects of evangelism that are also very challenging in terms of like our attitude, thinking like Jesus and I used the phrase uh, that the gospel needs to become real to us, right? And certain ways that we listen to God and obey him can really demonstrate whether or not the gospel is really real to me. And not just, again, true information I agree with, but whether or not it's truly real. This is how the gospel becomes real, right? This is whether or not Jesus is truly real to us or is just some distant person who did something for me a long time ago that I just received the benefit from. And I want to just emphasize this. In 1 Peter 2, 21, I think there's a principle we need to get here with this idea of honoring people who are unworthy of it, is the honor we give to people, again, is not based on the person, right? Nobody is worthy. No human being is worthy of all honor. But whether or not I am willing to reflect on what Jesus calls me to do here, whether or not I'm willing to strive to give honor to the undeserving ultimately comes down to my attitude toward the Lord, 
not toward that person. And it really tests the regard that I give to Jesus, not the regard I give that person, right? Because again, called to do this, even to those who are harsh and reasonable. And secondly, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, the cross is foolishness to the world, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God does not just instruct us in things that are minor course corrections to things we already prefer to do, want to do, want to excel in. Oftentimes, we are instructed to do things where we have to put ourselves to death, where we have to be honest enough to reflect on Jesus and really think seriously, is the way that I'm thinking here like Christ? And if we're not willing to reflect on that, then something fundamentally is wrong with the condition of our heart and our faith. Again, like John talked about, Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, we are to compare ourselves with Jesus, not in a way that's discouraging, but humbling, convicting, and motivating. This is something we would never want to do, we would never think to do, never be motivated to do, if it were not for Jesus being at the center of the instruction. Why can we do this? Why should we do this? Because this is what it looks like for the gospel to become real to us. So when things are difficult... You need to reflect, right? Where does your mind go? When things are hard, when people mistreat you, in those moments, do these instructions carry forward in your mind and attitude? Are you willing to even be convicted when you see you are in error and out of step with these instructions? Humble yourself and be honest about that. Even apologize where you've seen that you have acted out of line with these instructions. Again, this is an essential quality of faith where we have to think, what has Jesus done for me? Treat situations as Jesus would, not as I would. All right. Secondly, this is how grace becomes real and really digs deep into our hearts. You know, there's a common saying that I've heard in the world that, again, in a worldly-minded way, it just, it totally makes sense. You respect me, I respect you. You honor me, I honor you. And that's how this is going to work, right? That's not how it works with Jesus. You know, imagine as Jesus was being crucified, if he entered into his suffering with that rule, imagine him saying to someone, you honor me and I'm going to honor you. And someone spits in his face and slaps him, right? This was not the rule of Jesus's life. The idea you respect me, I respect you is worldly and anti-Christ and ungodly. Again, this is how grace becomes real to us. Christ suffered for us. When it says he bore our sins in his body, what does that mean? That in sin, we disrespect him. We treat him shamefully, shamefully. We are the harsh and unreasonable master. Jesus puts himself in subjection to our horrible attitudes and our sin, and he's willing to bear it in a way only exemplified in the suffering that is evident in the cross. <sighs> to give someone respect that I do not want to respect, it humbles me and changes my attitude. I have had very harsh bosses in my past, and I have tried to remember these verses and trying to apply these things. When you are dealing with someone who is extremely cruel and extremely unreasonable, is challenging, it is beautiful. It is humbling in a necessary way, and it, it helps us have more understanding of who God is as a real being. Showing honor, God is not a robot. God's not some, some machine in the sky, just doing things like an automaton, right? God chooses through difficulty to do things for us that we really do not deserve. When I realize 
how hard it is to do this, what am I realizing? That God's better than me. That for God to show me honor and respect is a very real decision he makes that requires self-control and sacrifice that I don't have. And that humbles me to respect God more and it motivates me to want to do better, right? All right. The rest of this is going to be very brief. Uh, Titus chapter two, I'm going to read verses nine and 10 and uh, ultimately just try to emphasize uh, the instructions being said here. So Titus two, nine and 10, uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles there and look at it with me. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Your translation may say not talking back, not pilfering, that would be not stealing, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Uh, Look back really quickly, the end of verse 5. Ultimately, why are older women to teach younger women to grow in faith and godliness in all those ways that it states there, so that the word of God will not be dishonored? Look at the end of verse 8, Titus being a young man, to live as an example. Why is he to do that? So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And finally, the end of verse 10, why are bond slaves, servants, to live in this way, to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in every respect? The reality is our example reflects back on God. You know, there's just a reality to that that we have to take very seriously. And it should be, it should be convicting that whether people can mentally associate us with God or not, that's what they're doing. I'll tell you this. I've worked in environments where uh, everybody went to, sh- went to church. Uh, but in those environments, everybody used profanity. They all gossiped. They all complained. Like literally everybody, even like this sweet old lady I would talk to who had a very easy job in the area I was working Even she was very profane and and she would complain all the time and gossip about people. And this lady was a devoted churchgoer. And I I would have people tell me, you know, again, oh, I would never act like this outside of this workplace. And you know what that told me? That told me that everybody's religion that I worked with was an absolute joke. And I, if I did not have my own convictions, I would have zero interest in joining whatever religion they were a part of that had clearly done absolutely nothing for them in any way whatsoever, right? And so we need to be that light where if people know that we are associated with God, what they need to see is godliness exemplified. It doesn't mean we're going to be flawless, uh, but it does mean we need to take that very seriously, right? That's what we're being told here. Anyway, the first thing that he says to bond slaves in verse nine is to be in subjection in everything. I'm going to lump in the idea of being well-pleasing. What does this mean? What does this look like? And I think it's very simple. It's simply to be sincerely obedient, right? So the other uh, instructions really clarify that this is something that we're to strive to do in sincerity. This is not just an external subjection that we give to those like our employers. It is something of the heart. And again, I realize that aligning your heart in this with your behavior uh, really is the greatest battle. Um, But that's a battle that we need to face. Uh, This is a genuine kind of subjection. Uh, We need to be a people who work hard and even go above and beyond. The idea of being well-pleasing, right? That we aren't just doing what's been expected and then checking out, trying to do, God forbid, the minimum and just get on with our day. 
in, in my mind, what I've tried to think is when I'm working for a company, I need to adapt the interests of that company. You know, like Daniel, when he was in Babylon, you know, God told him, you need to look after the well-being of Babylon, the nation that literally destroyed Jerusalem and had done horrible things to God's people and was only a place where God's people were exiled from their home for a short amount of time as they yearned to go back. God said, look after the interests of this nation that has done these things. Again, when we're working for a company, we adapt the interests of that company. We generally want the well, the well-being, not only of our company, our boss, our fellow employees. Uh, very challenging, but this is what the gospel means. Uh, it's not automatic, and we shouldn't expect it to be. God does not instruct us so consistently even to do things that we are just automatically wired to do necessarily on a natural basis. This is a discipline. It's something we've got to carry with us into our environments through the week. We need to memorize scriptures like this, reflect deeply on scriptures like this, and pray for God's help to do better uh, in our attitudes in these things. So again, uh, sincerely obedient, doing what you're told, working hard, and even trying to go above and beyond. The problem that I faced with this, with not being argumentative, this I don't think is true across the board, but I think what easily happens is when you show yourself willing to work hard, you may be working for a boss who will ring you out for everything you wor- you're worth and have you do other people's jobs for them on top of that, which you don't have the time or ability to do, and then expect you to work overtime that you should not be having to work, uh, which then can take away time that other really important things need to happen. So what I'm trying to say is being in this kind of subjection may potentially create more difficulties you have to face. It may not result in just praise from your boss and becoming the favored employee. It may it may turn into they complain when I tell them to do things they yell at me when I tell them to do things. Well, this employee doesn't and will do what I tell them to do. So I am going to just divert more to that person as a result. But I said to say, even in the midst of that, uh, we need to be careful not to talk back. And we have to be cautious with disagreements and setting boundaries with employers when that is necessary. Uh, that can take strategizing and I think seeking wisdom and being very thoughtful but I'll tell you, when, when I've worked in management uh, and would tell my employees to do certain things that I really needed them to do quickly, and then they ask, well, why do I need to do that? Or, you know, that's this other person's thing. Tell them to do it. Uh, the immediate trigger for me emotionally was anger and frustration, right? Um, and a lot of times I didn't have the time to have to explain the details of why I'm telling them particularly to do this and why I need them to do it, right? So what I'm trying to say with that is sometimes with disagreement, if, you know, even something could be done better a different way. Or, you know, try to make an appeal like, really, that's this other person's job, and I think maybe you need to hold them accountable to their duty. Maybe do what you're told and talk to your boss about that later at a different time, right? Again, I think there's there's wisdom when you're trying to navigate what God has said and genuinely put that first in how you're approaching situations um, I do think there's there's other approaches that may not be immediately apparent if you just think about it more and pray for wisdom. Bottom line, we need to be a people who are not argumentative. Uh, when we're told to do things we don't want to do, when we're told to do things that may seem too much, or when we, we, we may be feeling like we are giving other employees license to be lazy, 
we still just need to do as we're told and have a lot of caution when we try to bring up disagreements or boundaries. Not pilfering. Um, this is fairly straightforward, but I think it's worth expounding on just a little bit. The idea of pilfering, um, the way I've kind of defined this in my mind, is minor stealing, right? Just like stealing little things, you know, and I imagine if a person was a slave in the first century, you could think like, you know, my, I'm, I'm giving all this time and energy, and it's so thankless. I deserve this. <laughs> you know, so you could think you could justify this, right? That I deserve this thing that is being withheld, and I'm putting in all this time and energy, so, but not pilfering. Um, there's no way of justifying it, just, justifying it. And I think we need to think beyond the norm, really meditate on different aspects of what this would entail. Obviously, they're stealing things, they're stealing money, but I think they're stealing company time. Uh, you know, I've been in environments where as much as you can waste time, people will waste time. As much as you can get away with not working on the clock, people will not, not work on the clock. Uh, but what kind of people should we be? You know, if we're being paid to be productive, then be productive. <laughs> Do your job when nobody is looking, when other people are being lazy all around you, and maybe you'll make them feel guilty for working when they're not. Work for the Lord. You know, it's not about not, not making other people feel bad or, you know, anything like that. Do what the Lord wants you to do and don't pilfer. Don't waste company time. And then finally, showing all good faith so that the doctrine of God can be adorned and shown to be very beautiful. Uh, prove yourself to be reliable and trustworthy. You know, this gets to not pilfering is you should not need to be micromanaged. To illustrate this, a good friend of mine um, who's preaching now, he wasn't preaching at the time. Uh, he had a job interview for um, a financial company, and it was like a really big deal that he even got an interview. And he, you know, did not expect to get the job anyway. So he like went to the interview like, I mean, I'm not going to get this job. What does it matter? So <laughs> for better or for worse, all of that kind of emboldened him to be even more open about his faith in the job interview, which made him think even more he wasn't going to get the job. One thing he said is, you know, I'm a Christian. Therefore, I ultimately see myself as working for Christ. And so you're not going to need to micromanage me. I'm going to work hard even when nobody's looking. And you can trust me. I'm going to do my job and I'm going to work hard at it. And he was told later he got the job because of saying those things. And they said it wasn't about his religion. It was that he emphasized that his beliefs would make it so he would be trustworthy and work hard when no one was looking. And that's ultimately what they were looking for is someone that they could trust to work without having to breathe down their neck. This is a very rare thing in the world that people prove themselves to be trustworthy when nobody's looking. I've been in environments again where even in management, uh, if a manager was in an office alone, they were taking a nap and their employees would come into the office and catch them sleeping. And you can imagine that employee's respect for their boss just plummeted because of that, right? Um, so it's very common that if there are not immediate eyes looking, again, time wasting, doing other things, browsing the phone, uh, just wasting company time, we need to be a people who are consistently faithful and prove ourselves to show all good faith so that can adorn the doctrine of our Lord in every respect. Christians ought to be good stewards of responsibility. That's just across the board. Whether that be your money, again, your personal time, uh, your relationships, you know, no matter what it is, a child of God 
ought to be a good steward across the board, not just in convenient pieces, pockets of our lives. Jesus was a good steward of people and responsibility. And there's something very fundamental that closeness to Jesus also then encourages us to ourselves be very responsible with responsibility. All right, that's that's the lesson. Again, I know that was uh, very straightforward, but these are things that we just need to, I think, strive to apply, meditate on, and really dwell on how we can carry these things into our personal environments, even outside of um, work, uh, relationships, family, uh, and the like. I'd like to say a prayer for these things, just praying for God to help us for these things. And after the prayer, if there are any spiritual needs here this morning, if anyone is convicted by the gospel this morning and it's been on their mind and on their heart, we do have water behind me if somebody wants to put on Christ in baptism and repent of living in sin this morning, but also if there's any spiritual needs as well. But before that, if you'll bow with me in prayer.